Good to see you all, even some new faces tonight. This is fun. A couple people that didn't come back. I'm not sure what that, what that says. But uh, no, a couple people said they, the Rickerts are at a wedding rehearsal. You know, that Teresa's coming. She's on her way. She's going to be late. Kenny, your mom's traveling, right? She's not here. Yeah. So we'll have a few, few people back. So, man, yeah, this is going to be fun. It's always been a good time. I am really excited, as always, for this, just studying more today. Really excited. I lost my voice on Sunday, and it's slowly coming back. So if I sound a little different or if I cough a little bit, that would be why. So you can pray that my voice makes it through. Try to talk as little as possible, but when you have kids at home running around, it's hard because they just get into everything. So let me pray. We'll do some quick review uh, just from last week. And then I'd like to, so if you guys have the notes there, I'd like to get through uh, background, the literary context there. That's my goal. If we can get further than that, that's great. But um, I doubt it. I don't, I'm not optimistic of my own abilities. And if you guys have questions, um, I'd like to, if we can do historical context, that would be great. Um, I'm just reading more and more of Joel. And so I'm really excited to get into Joel. Um, but I also understand that understanding the literary context, and as you can see, there's a lot of passages there. That's vital. Um, and so I'll try to not move too fast, but like I said, if you want to stop, slow down, ask questions, that's, that's totally fine. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for your grace, Lord, especially as we um, study a book like Joel. Um, your grace shines all the more brighter. Um, in the light of ju your judgment against sin um, that we rightly uh, deserve. And so, Lord, we thank you for um, the work of your Son in dying in our place for our sins. Thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I just pray as we begin this study in Joel, um, as we um, cover some of these introductory matters, that it would not just be an intellectual activity, but it would be an act of worship, um, that as we study your word, we'd be more conformed uh, to the image of your son, that we would know you uh, because we love you for who you are. So Lord, be with us at this time, we, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> so I am going to quickly recap stuff. Sometimes we can get bogged down in recap. Like I said, though, um, this is like a classroom class, okay? So don't feel bad asking questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Um, I really actually enjoy the participation. That's why we went a little long last week. So if there's anything I say that's unclear, anything like that, please don't hesitate to, to jump in. I, one thing I miss, I actually really miss college. I kind of envy Sydney going to master's. I'm like, man, she's going to have a lot of fun. So I, I try to bring that back. I'm trying to relive my glory days, I guess you could say. Um, but no, seriously, jump in at, at any time. We're all learning. We're all in process here together. Um, and so I just wanted to, to make that clear. So just recap, this was, is it moving? Okay, our projectors I think are slowing down. This is from last week, so if you had that whole packet of notes, um, this is, you know, preliminary stuff. Why even study the book of Joel? Um, and even before that, why even study like Old Testament prophecy? And one of the points I made is that, well, because a great deal of the Bible is prophetic. And so if we just say, well, this is a hard part of the Bible to understand, we're pretty much, you know, punting away, to use a football analogy, over a quarter of the Bible, okay? So just because something is hard to understand is not a good reason to get rid of it. And a great deal of God's Word, and all of it is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for training in godliness, and that means we need to work hard at these difficult sections. Um, 
Number two is to connect the puzzle pieces of the biblical storyline. We're going to do a lot of that tonight. That's pretty much all that we're doing tonight. Um, this is one thing when, when I went to college, it really helped me see how the Bible fit together. I think growing up, I was just kind of, okay, I'm reading about Daniel, and I literally have no idea what's going on and what that means about God and what that means about you know, me and my life. And so what I want to do is connect those puzzle pieces. And I think really as we study Joel, because Joel is quoting so much of what's come before and also pointing forward, I think if you have a solid handle on Joel, you're going to understand not only what God is doing in the world, but where you fit in that plan. Does that make sense? And so Joel is really helpful to get a good handle on. If you understand Joel, I think you can understand um, what's gone on before and what's going to take place in the future. And then ultimately, the third point I just said was to know God. I think we have a very selfish view when we open the Bible and the first question we ask is, okay, but what does this mean for me? Okay, that's actually a very... I would say, idolatrous view of when we come to Scripture. The Bible is not about you. It's about God, okay? And you need to know who God is before you can even understand yourself. And so we looked at a couple passages that do that. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 is one of my favorites on that. Um, You know, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You know, all this stuff. And he says, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And that's our goal as we're... Christians in this Christian walk, in this life, no matter where you are, it's to know God and to know him more. And so that was just a couple of reasons. We moved from, um, you know, why? Oh, it's kind of glitchy. So we moved from, you know, why do we do that? And then this was actually a big part too. How do we study Old Testament prophecy, okay? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you open the book of Joel and you're like, okay, this is not like Philippians. It's just a little different, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's even a different language. One is... Hebrew in origin has a Middle Eastern, even background, ancient Near East context. And then you have the New Testament, which is, you know, far more Western and Greek, and it just kind of makes more sense to us, okay? And so when we come to the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. And so these were a couple of points. I'm not going to belabor all of these. I'm just going to go through. Don't substitute riddles for what God has made plain. Look, don't make it more difficult than it needs to be, okay? Don't make it more difficult than it needs to be. Don't underestimate the intelligibility of the text. There are symbols, there are things that, um, you know, we interpret differently, but it's always based on context. It's always based on the verses in context. Um, So we always do that. Number three, don't underestimate the intelligence of the prophets. You spend a little bit of time on this, in particular, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. It's a great passage very clearly indicating that the prophets and the apostles knew what they were writing about. It's not that they were writing, they're just like, I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm just hoping that, you know, it's kind of like me when I'm playing darts. Like, I'm just like, I just hope I hit the target. You know, it's just like, I'm just, just bare minimum, okay? That's not what the prophets are doing. They actually know what they're aiming at. They know the goal. They know what they're saying. And before we go back to the past to understand the future, um, that's what we're doing here. Um, we just have to realize, look, we're a couple thousand years removed from the New Testament, okay? We're even more than that removed from the Old Testament, okay? Maybe 4,000 years, right? Or in the case of Joel, you know, just under maybe, you know, 3,000 years or something like that, okay? So it would make sense for us in 21st century America to not get things as quickly as a Jew living in 8th century Israel, right? Like, that just makes sense, okay? So I would say first, you know, have patience with yourself, but we need to go back to the past to understand the future. Number five, understand the difference between meaning and significance. 
um, uh, Brendan brought up a good point last time. He's like, you know, what's a, another example of that? Well, a good example I was even thinking of, um, even before tonight, especially when you see in the New Testament, like the language of mystery, you know, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. That's the one I mentioned last time. Especially when you come to a lot of the mystery language of the New Testament, it's not that the apostles are saying anything that's contradicting the Old Testament, okay? So like, for example, when you come to Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Israel, okay? And that actually, you know, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, okay, so Jew, we understand that, Israel, Gentile, they're saying everyone else, you and I, right? That dividing wall has been broken down, that through the work of Christ, everyone has access to Christ, that we can all come to him based on the work of Christ in the gospel, okay? And Paul is saying, you know, this is a mystery. This is not something that was revealed to the prophets of the Old Testament, but has now been revealed to the apostles in the New Testament. What I mean there by meaning and significance is that the apostles aren't introducing anything new or contradicting, sorry, I shouldn't say that. They are introducing something new, but it's not contradicting the Old Testament. In fact, especially as we're going to see from some passages in Genesis and Exodus, the whole purpose of Israel's existence was to be a blessing to all the other nations, okay? So when, they, you know, when someone comes to the New Testament and Paul says, um, you know, the Gentiles um, now have access to the gospel because of the work of Christ, Moses, hypothetically, if he was alive, is not reading that and going, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 that can't be. That's contradicting what I was saying in Genesis. That's not what's going on. Moses didn't understand exactly how all that would work out, but he would say, oh, yes, that makes sense. I understand no one's contradicting earlier scripture. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a more complicated principle, but I think that's vital um, because sometimes in some churches, they're dear brothers and sisters in Christ, but they will actually say that the New Testament um, and the work of Christ actually changes how we interpret and understand the Old Testament, Okay. We want to say as the church is crossway saying, no, we don't believe that, that actually we can understand the Old Testament um, as is. The meaning does not change, okay? So that was that fifth principle. Uh, a sixth one here, this is a fun one. Remember the sky monster principle? I'm not going to go into that again, but essentially um, the prophecy isn't over until the prophecy's over. You know, I, this is from college, but the professor gave an example of, hey, sky monster says, hey, I'm going to come destroy everything and everyone's going to be killed and struck down. Well, sky monster comes and he, you know, destroys part of this town, he, you know, kills maybe these people, but there's still a lot of people left, and the city's still, you know, not totally destroyed. Has the prophecy been fulfilled? No, right? So it's not until the sky monster comes and he totally destroys everything and all that stuff that the prophecy has been fulfilled. So it's silly, but you guys will remember it, right? That's why it's good to remember it, right? Or at least I, I hope you remember the sky monster principle. It stuck with me all these years. Uh, that's not a passage. That's just, uh, that's free. You don't have to pay for that one. Um, yeah, so remember the sky monster principle, okay? And then lastly, this is where we, we ended and we'll pick up. Why study Joel? A couple of points here, because Joel displays the practical, applicable nature of prophecy slash eschatology. If your study of the end times leads to a place where you can go, okay, great, I don't have to worry about any of that. We've missed the whole point of prophecy and eschatology, okay? That actually, even a book as hard to understand as Revelation, what? Yes, even Revelation, is meant to change how you live today, okay? That's actually the point, okay? 
It's not just to know neat facts about the future or have a nice colorful chart and you can say, I'm right here on the chart so I don't have to worry about all of this. No, it's actually to change our lives now, okay? And Joel does a really good job of doing that. Joel's also the most extensive treatment of the day of Yahweh. I don't think we're gonna talk about that tonight, but there's this key theme throughout the Old Testament of the day of the Lord. You'll see it in your Bibles. Um, whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's God the Father. That, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh, okay? And that's just how our English translations do it. Okay, so what does that mean? The day of the Lord. Joel's going to get into that. Joel clearly defines repentance. This is vital. Um, you know, we love to go to the New Testament, but actually um, what the Old Testament, in particular Joel 2, verses 12 to 17, what it says about repentance kind of sets the foundation, you could say, about what the Bible means to repent and turn from our sins. And then we ended here because Joel plainly articulates that there's unfulfilled prophecy. And there's a lot of, you know, talk about this and we spend a lot of time. I just wanted to make one more point. And if you guys want to bring anything up on any of this, we can before we, we, we jump in. Um, scholars on both sides, you know, whether they're, you know, clearly where we are as Crossway or, you know, like a sister church in town, like Sovereign Grace, they interpret things a little bit differently. Um, both of us will clearly say that there is Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled in the Old Testament, okay? Like, God appearing to Abraham when he's really old and saying what? You're going to have a son, right? And what happens? He has a son, okay? That's a prophecy that was fulfilled, right? You guys track with me. It's not, not, not complicated, right? Um, you know, you enter into the Mosaic Covenant and God says, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed and you're going to be taken into captivity and all these terrible things are going to happen to you. Well, that's exactly what happens, Right? You have all this sin going on in First and Second Kings. You guys see that? And you come to the end of Second Kings, and what? The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity by Assyria, and the southern kingdom has been taken into captivity by Babylon. Okay? That's an Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled. You guys tracking with me? Okay? There's also Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, right? You guys remember Isaiah 7:14? Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Okay? Okay, the virgin birth, very clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Did that come to pass? Yes, okay. Isaiah 53, Christ is going to suffer. He's going to die for the sins of his people. Did that happen? Yes, okay. And we could just go on and on. You know, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Joel 2 is going to get at that. Okay, there's all kinds of these things, okay. And those have been fulfilled, okay. Now, this is where we differ a little bit with some churches, um, we would say and have no problem with saying that there's a great deal of prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled with Jesus' second coming, right? Sometimes what churches will do, um, and oh, I shouldn't just say churches, pastors, theologians, smart guys, they're a lot smarter than me and they're godlier than me, but sometimes what they'll do is to, they'll try and put everything saying that the gospel of Christ and the work of the cross is the central fulcrum point in all of redemptive history, it's the most important thing, and everything needs to be fulfilled in that, okay? I pretty much agree with all of that, except the last statement. We don't feel the pressure that everything needs to be fulfilled in that, that there's actually a great deal of prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. We don't need to go back and spiritualize, like for example, if you guys read the end of Joel 3, Joel 3 talks about how there's going to be a glorious restoration of Israel to the land, okay? 
they're going to come back to the land. There's going to be milk and honey flowing. It's going to be great. They're going to be eating and drinking. It's going to be a great time. They're never going to get attacked again, all this stuff, okay? We don't feel the pressure to say, actually, that's in some way spiritual. Joel didn't actually know what he was saying there. In some way, that's been fulfilled in a different way. You guys tracking with me? We say, no, we're, we're still waiting for that to be fulfilled, that Christ is going to be returned and that Israel is going to return to the land and they're going to have significance as Israel, as a nation. Does that make sense? And, and I just wanted to make this point. You know, I don't know if there's, isn't there a book like, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist? Okay, yeah, I, I think so. I don't have enough faith to spiritualize all those prophecies, okay? If the ones in the Old Testament that Abraham was going to have a child, if that literally came true, we don't need to do any weird spiritualizing of it, okay? If all these prophecies about Christ and his death and his virgin birth, if those all literally came true, why all of a sudden do we need to say, except all these other ones, we need to interpret them differently? You guys understand what I'm saying? So that's just one point I wanted to make. I know Mark would generally say the same thing. Um, we don't want to spiritualize these unfulfilled prophecies. And Joel very clearly articulates that there is unfulfilled prophecy. It's not just Joel. I wanted to turn to this. If you have your Bibles, um, remember, we're going to be doing a lot of looking up Scripture. Acts 3. Acts chapter 3. This is a really good passage for you. If someone says, well, hey, you know, I think, you know, some of these prophecies of, you know, we could spiritualize them and not sure if, maybe, maybe God's done with Israel. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going to go on. Acts 3, beginning in verse 18, I think Peter is also very clear that there's unfulfilled prophecy. He's preaching to a Jewish audience, and here's what he says. Acts 3, verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, okay? That's what we're here for. We're, we're studying Joel in, in theory. We're going to get there eventually, right? What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, Joel's one of them, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. See how specific that is? Peter's saying, here's an Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would suffer. What does he say? That was fulfilled. In other words, it's, it's, it's done. That has happened. That has transpired, okay? Keep reading, verse 19. In light of that, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, no, now notice this. This is after the ascension. Christ has already ascended. So what sending of Christ is this? Is this his first coming or his what? His second. He's anticipating the second advent of Christ. That it has been appointed for you, Jesus. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, okay? I mean, I just think that's an amazing, that's kind of like a home run passage for me where I'm like, look, Peter is very clear. A lot of prophecy has been fulfilled, but there's also a lot of prophecy yet to be fulfilled when Christ returns. Does that make sense? All right, I'm not gonna belabor the point anymore. I think you guys got it. I don't need, I don't need to beat a dead horse. You're like, we get it, Caleb, we get it. There's stuff coming, Okay. Any questions on any of that, okay? I know maybe if it was your first time, that was a lot. These are recorded, I think, so yeah, I put it up. So if you want to listen, you're, you're more than welcome to tune in. All right, next page. We are going to jump, oh, this was, we talked about this. We, spent, we don't need to talk about this anymore unless you really want to. 
This was fun. I could talk about this all night. We don't need to talk about that. All right. Background. Background and literary context. So we're done with all the general introduction. Now we're just introducing the book. Okay. It's like, we're never going to talk about this book. Yes, we will. Don't worry. Don't worry. Just probably not tonight. Um, this is why, by the way, you know, in the small groups this last year, um, a lot of people last year were, were saying, hey, we really want to do something about studying the Bible. Just where is there some interpretive tools? How do we understand the Bible? This is why we do that, okay? I mean, if you guys notice, I don't know if you have all the notes, but I have literary context. And you go to the next page, historical context. Those aren't just like neat things where you check the box, okay, yada, yada. It's actually when you study those two things, it's going to help you understand the book, okay? So that's why we're doing especially when you're coming to a whole book of Joel. It's like we need to understand what exactly uh, is going on here. And so that's what we want to do, literary context, okay? I'm going to have a lot of the verses on the screen, but if you want to have your Bible there, we'll, we'll turn to a couple as well. Um, I just want to start with this. I know that's Genesis 1.26, but Genesis 1.1 is a great place to start. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. I don't know if anyone got the Sound of Music reference, but it's a good movie. Okay, Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God. Okay, you, you just stop there, okay? I once heard in a sermon, I think it was by David Platt, where he was like, it, it was in light of everything going on with, you know, homosexuality and all this stuff. And he's like, these are the most offensive words in all of scripture. In the beginning, God. And his point was, is, you know, before, you know, you go up in arms about what the Bible says, about what you can do with your body and, you know, the choices I want to make and all this stuff. It's like, you have to start with this foundation, that there's a God who created you and has exclusive authority over you, okay? And so I think it's right, even as we start here, I already mentioned this point, but this book is not primarily about you. You are secondary. Maybe not even secondary. What's below secondary? Third, thirdiary, okay? Tertiary, there you go, right? I knew it was that word. I was just trying to get people to laugh. No, right? You're not primary. You're tertiary. So understand that, okay? This is a book about God. It's as we study who he is and how we see his character and we see who he is, we're drawn to him. We love him for who he is and we see his plan for all of history. Okay, Genesis 126. Genesis 126. So I have this on the screen. Um, if you had Old Testament 2 with me when I did this in equipping hour, a lot of these passages are the same. Some of them are a little different, but these are vital for understanding kind of that backbone of the Old Testament, okay? But we're not looking at all passages. Um, I'm primarily thinking of passages that help us understand the book of Joel. But this is where it starts. God makes everything in six days. On the sixth day, what does he say? Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Actually, this is an aside, going back to meaning and significance. This is another really good example of when we come to the New Testament and you see, man, it's really clear that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Like, we get that. Okay, there's the Trinity, okay? When we come back to Genesis 1, it's not clear from Genesis 1.26 that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is clear there's a what? A plurality, right? What does he say? Let's make man in our image. You see the plurality, us, our? You know, he's not saying, let me make man in my image. There's actually a plurality here. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So they will have dominion over the fish of the sea. This is what we call the creation mandate, okay? 
This is why God created man, to exercise dominion. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he says that three times. He makes that so clear, this exclusive ownership that God has over mankind. And he blessed them. And he said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. If you haven't underlined it, that's a key phrase in the Old Testament. Fruitful and multiply. You'll see that all throughout Genesis. You come to um, Exodus uh, 1, I think verses 6 or 7. Um, you see Israel's in captivity. But what's happening? They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. The problem is, is they're in Egypt, not in, where should they be? Israel, right? The promised land, okay? So they're multiplying, but they're not in the land that they're supposed to be. But here's this original creation agenda, and this goes throughout the whole Old Testament. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, okay? Well, they are in the image of God. They bear his image. Well, if they fill the earth, what is the earth full of? People reflecting the image of who? God. That is the goal, that God fills the earth with his glory, that he rules over it and subdue it and have dominion. All right, you guys know this, that that did not go according to plan from our point of view, you might say. Um, the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. Then you have clearly in Genesis 3.15, uh, what we call the first gospel, okay? The hope that this ain't how it's gonna end, <laughs> You know, this blessed unity that there was in the garden and God dwelling with man, this isn't over. Actually, know that God promises here, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, you guys think with me here. What's more of like a, you don't want that part of your body to get hurt? Like the heel or your head, your head, right? Like, I mean, if, you know, you stub your toe, and I know it, sound, it feels like you're going to die, but it's really not that bad, okay? Your heel, you know, it's not that much worse, okay? That's not nearly as bad as what? Your head. Like, a head wound is obviously far more significant. And so here, you see this promise that this serpent who has brought destruction and sin into the world, he's going to suffer a death wound, but the seed of the woman is also going to be struck. You also see this, I just want to point this out, between your offspring and her offspring. Um, it's not, I mean, it is ultimately, you know, you come to the New Testament, clearly, who's the ultimate offspring? This is not a trick question, Sunday school answer. Jesus, okay? And, you know, you know, the serpent. But you do see throughout the Old Testament, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman in conflict with the offspring of the serpents. Like when you come to uh, Exodus, right? And you actually have the children of Israel multiplying and being fruitful. And then you have like Pharaoh trying to strike down and kill all the offspring. What's going on there? Well, ultimately, that's satanic, right? It all goes back to Genesis 3.15. And the Exodus is one example. And that goes throughout. Um, you have in uh, the flood account, right? Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Rather than the earth being filled with God's glory, what did it say? The earth was filled with, anyone remember? Violence, okay? Contrary to what God had created. And so after that, you have um, God judges the earth with um, the flood. He wipes out. He starts over with a clean slate. And what does he tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. 
He's going back to Genesis 1. God's creational agenda has not changed. You come over to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is another one of these passages that zeroes in and focuses, um, you could say, the, the seed. Okay, so we get it. It's a seed of the woman. Who in particular? Well, this is going to be a seed, an offspring of Abram, uh, through whom, you know, redemption and crushing the snake is going to come. And here you kind of see these three promises that, again, drive the rest of the Old Testament. I would just say this, land, seed, and blessing. Write that down. Land, seed, blessing, okay? The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's going to make uh, Abraham and his descendants a great nation in that land. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so this is really important to get early on. Is God's purpose of blessing Israel just for the purpose of blessing Israel? No, what's, what's the purpose? To bless everyone else, right? So through Israel, God is going to bring blessing to all nations, okay? Through Israel, through the descendant of Abraham, okay? So, I mean, and this is, and this is even crucial when we come to Joel, okay? We come to, you know, a situation where we're going to get to Joel, and things are not going very well, let's just say, okay? It doesn't seem like, you know, land, seed, and blessing, is that still God's agenda? That's kind of the question. Well, well God, you've made all these promises. You're going to do all these great things. Is this still what's going to happen? It goes back to a passage like Genesis 12. Genesis 49. This is um, a little bit more of a um, kind of difficult prophecy. Um, but what you've got going on here is, um, well, you could just turn there if you want, but uh, you don't have to. I'll just turn there. You've got Jacob uh, towards the end of his life. If you remember, you know, the Joseph narrative, um, Jacob and his sons are brought over to Egypt, okay? So that's good. They're surviving the famine. What's the problem? They're not in the land of Israel. Like, that's where they're supposed to be, okay? So they're surviving. That's good, but they need to get back to where they're supposed to be. And Jacob, at the end of his life, he's blessing his sons, and he says to Judah, this prophecy, the scepter, or you could say authority, the ruler's staff, as the next verse applies, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute, maybe some of your translations translation say Shiloh, um, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice this, it's not just Israel, actually. Okay, also through Judah will come the blessing. And then you've got this, maybe you guys are like, okay, you talk about vines and fig trees, or I've heard that you talk about vines and fig trees in Isaiah. This is kind of why, and this is actually kind of cool. You're going to see this in Joel. It's not just random, okay? This is really, really cool. In this prophecy, he's saying, yes, hey, a descendant of Judah is going to rule. He's going to exercise authority. But notice what else is going on here. Binding his foal, you know, his donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a horse person, okay? But I know generally speaking, like, you tie up a horse to, like, a wood thing, okay? Because, like, if you tie him up to, like, a vine, what's he going to do? He's going to eat it. He's going to eat it, and he's not going to be attached, and he's just going to run away, okay? Well, in this passage, man, he's tying up this donkey here to the choice vine. It's no big deal. Look at what else he's doing. He's washing his garments in wine. I do not drink wine. I think it tastes disgusting. 
but I know it's expensive. What's this guy doing? Washing his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. Like, you see the, the, the prosperity here? It's like you can tie up a horse to, you know, a plant, and it's no big deal if he eats it. You can wash your garments in, you know, wine, and it's no big deal because this enormous prosperity, right? So this is key, and you're going to see this in Joel picked up, but there's this promise of a glorious future through Judah, okay? One from his line is going to rule and reign, and there's going to be glorious physical prosperity. You guys see that? He has Genesis 49. Exodus 19, okay? So this is after the exodus from Egypt. God has uh, taken his people out of the land. He has destroyed the world superpower of the day in Egypt. Um, This is right before the Ten Commandments. And this is what the Lord says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and right here, we know how the story ends. We're going, "Uh uh-oh. I don't think they're going to do that. I don't think so. But if they do, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So God has exclusive rights to it all, but specifically with Israel, he's going to use them for a specific purpose. You guys see that? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what do priests do? They intercede for not themselves, but for other people, right? This is what Israel is supposed to be, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are supposed to be set apart by God and be holy for the sake of all the other nations. That the pagan nations of the Egyptians, of you know, later on the Assyrians, Babylonians, Gentiles, people like you and I, that we would see, look at how good their God is. Okay? That is how Israel was designed to function. And you guys know Exodus, how do they do with that? Like, even like in the same book, like right after that, like, God gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then Moses literally hasn't even come down from the mountain. In Exodus 32, what's going on? They have the golden golden calf, right? He literally hasn't even made it down from the mountain. You know those memes, like, you had one job? Like, they had one job. They, like, they didn't even get to the point. Like, he was like, you had one. Like, they didn't even finish the meme. They were that bad. Like, they didn't even have one job because they didn't even get it, right? It's so bad. They sin. They fall with the golden calf. But... You see later on throughout that, this is a good passage to remember, Exodus 34. Even in light of all of that, before all your people I will do marvels such as it have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. God is going to do a work even greater than the original Exodus. I mean, you guys read all through Exodus, you see all these you know, signs and plagues and wonders, and we're even going to see some of those picked up in Joel. I know, it's amazing. Can't wait to get to Joel right? He's going to do something even greater than what happened in the original Exodus. And you can even see, you see that kind of blue part I underlined there, that it's almost as if they're already anticipating that they're going to be taken into exile. See what he says? And all the people among whom you are. So he's anticipating that Israel is what? Not going to be in the land, but they're actually going to be what? Amongst all the other peoples. That's not good, actually. They're supposed to be the nation and the light to all those peoples, not to be amongst them in that regard. But what's going to happen is all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. So all the nations are going to see how great the Lord is. He has not abandoned his people. Leviticus 26 is the next one there. Is this interesting to you guys? I always find this interesting when I go back over. I'm like, hey, it actually makes sense. What's going on here? 
Leviticus. I do want you guys to turn there real quick. We're not going to really read much. But I want you guys to see this because I think when you see this, you're going to understand what's going on in the prophets. Okay, Leviticus 26. If you have the ESV, it has the heading there, blessings for obedience, right? So this is after the Exodus. God has reconstituted the covenant. Covenant is just a fancy word for the agreement between those two parties. If they obey, they're going to be blessed. If Israel keeps the stipulations, the rules of the covenant, they're going to be blessed. But look at this. Look at 26. You've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13 verses on blessings for obedience. And then what's the next heading there above verse 14? What does it say? Punishment for disobedience. And look how many verses they've got. Uh-oh. That even goes over to the next page on my Bible. 46 verses on punishment for disobedience. So even just looking at the text, what do you guys think they're going to do? Are they going to obey or are they going to disobey? They're going to disobey, right? And act, I find this fascinating, especially when we look to Joel. So I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's fine because this is cool. So Joel 1.4. It's a whole bunch of locusts, okay? He's like, what the cutting locust has left, you know, the jumping locust has eaten. What the jumping locust left, you know, the snarling locust. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But he goes through, and there's just wave after wave after wave of locust, okay? Now, you and I read that, and you're just like, okay, a bunch of locusts. Like, that's not good. Where do you think, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jewish person reading, you hear locusts, what do you think they think? Curses for disobedience. I want you guys to see this. Look at Deuteronomy 28. So Leviticus, that's with the first generation, right? They die out. Even Moses, he dies out because of their sinfulness, right? Come to Numbers. Okay, now you come to the second generation. Deuteronomy, that's the second giving of the law. Deutero, that's second. Namos, law. Second giving of the law with the second generation. Look at Deuteronomy 20. I don't have this in my notes. Deuteronomy 28. Same thing. The blessings for obedience are given. Verse 15, the curses for disobedience are given. Look at this. Deuteronomy 28, 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. Okay? Boom. Now you understand what's going on in Joel. So when he says over and over and over, all these locusts right at the beginning, what's he saying? You guys have broken the covenant. You guys have sinned against the Lord. It's not random that this locust swarm like you've never seen before and will never be seen again, it's not random that this is happening to you. What's happening is Deuteronomy 28. This is what's working itself out because you have sinned and you've transgressed the covenant. Verse 41, look at what it says. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we get to Joel, the locusts have happened. They've come, they've destroyed everything, but Israel's still in the land. What's next? First, I just read. Captivity. So he's warning them, you guys need to repent because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? Look, you've seen the locust. You know, look, this happened and it was really bad. So you know that the captivity is coming. Repent. You guys see that? That's why understanding these passages 
are just vital. So that was a side. We'll talk more about that later. If, it, it's, I get excited about these things, okay? That's how the Bible fits together. It's not random, right? Anytime you read a verse and you're like, that doesn't make sense. The problem's not with the verse. The problem's usually with you, okay? It's that we don't understand. We need to do the work. This is in the context of Leviticus 26, um, the uh, blessings for obedience, right? You guys remember this language maybe? I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply. Where do we hear that? Genesis 1. So has God abandoned his original creation agenda? No. No, that's still continuing. He's going to turn to his people, confirm his covenant with them. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to multiply. I will make my dwelling among you. God will actually dwell amongst his people again, and my soul shall not abhor you. Well, that's good. I don't want God to abhor my soul. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So there's this glorious hope, even in light of the context of where we know disobedience is coming, there's hope on the other side. <clears throat> okay, I need to keep moving here. This is Numbers 24. Numbers 24. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, I should have mentioned this earlier. In Genesis 49, I was talking about, you know, the, the guy where he's going to tie his donkey to the vine. He's going to eat it, and he's going to have, you know, he's going to wash his clothes with wine because there's so much wine. Both of that passage, Genesis 49 and Numbers 24, the prophecy starts out and says that it's going to take place in the latter days, Okay. Write that down, in the latter days, in the last days. That's a vital, vital phrase in the Old Testament, in the last days. That this is going to come towards the end, let's just say. I'll just leave it there. This isn't something that's going to happen in the immediate future, but towards the end, okay? In the last days. You see this in um, Numbers 24, 14, I think. And he says this, this is one thing that's going to happen in the last days, this is Balaam's prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Okay? That same descendant from Genesis 49, right? Jacob is blessing his sons through Judah. It's that same thing. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. All these pagan nations. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So yes, Israel's going to be fruitful and they're going to multiply, but they're going to be fruitful and multiply when there is the true seed on the throne ruling. Does that make sense? Gets back to that book I was talking about last week. Dominion and dynasty, both will take place. All right, I need to keep moving here. I think you guys are understanding. Deuteronomy 30, this is after, we're gonna look at this passage again, by the way, because Joel references it. But in light of this sin, curses for disobedience, is God going to just abandon his people? No. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. If you're outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, if they're the furthest away they could possibly be, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. There's going to be prosperity like never before seen. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is a glorious promise because especially in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but especially as we move on through Samuel, Kings, and all the prophets, the problem is the heart. That's Israel's problem. And that's our problem. You can tell us, hey, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. But the problem is, I have a sinful heart that doesn't want to do those things and is actually not able to do those things. 
And God promises here, actually, there's going to come a day where God is going to change a heart. And I want you to see that it's even in this context of um, prosperity, you know, physical prosperity, return to the land for God's people, Israel. I don't have slides for the next two for those of you who are following along. Ruth 4, I'm going to move really quick. You come to Joshua, they, they conquer the land, they don't conquer all of it. You come to Judges, and you realize, like, like Israel is just bad. Like, that's how you could summarize Judges. You read through Judges, and it is not a pick-me-up book. It is bad. It's really sad. Um, that's all I'm going to say on Judges. It's bad, okay? That's the problem. Israel has a heart. But then you come to Ruth, and Ruth is this glorious book. She's also the most precious child I've ever seen. That's my daughter. Um, right? Ruth is this amazing book because it starts with verse one. It says, in the days when the judges judged. So it's in the context of all this horrible stuff going on. You have this beautiful love story of redemption, and then you come to the end of Ruth chapter four, and it shows that even in this context of judges, this horrible context of sin, that God has not abandoned his plan. Because it ends with saying, you know, this person's the father of this person, and this person is the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. David's our man, right? I mean, he's not Jesus, but like, I won't even say he's close, but like, he's really cool. David is legit, right? He's a man after God's own heart. He's a great king who falls short. Um, but there's hope, right? There's hope. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. We're actually doing really good on time. I think we're going to finish. And by finish, I mean we're going to finish what we were supposed to finish last week, but that's okay. It's all right. I don't have a time frame, so like we can just go as long as we want. Keep going until next summer. No, just kidding. Second Samuel 7. This is one of those passages to, I don't know if you should like dog ear, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like the page where like you bend the page on your Bible. I don't know if you want to do that to your Bible because it's God's book, but you might want to, like for 2 Samuel 7. Remember 2 Samuel 7, okay? I don't know some mnemonic device to remember it. Just 2 Samuel 7. You need to remember it, okay? 2 Samuel 7. This is what we call the Davidic covenant, okay? The Davidic covenant. I've already mentioned this, but covenants, especially in the Old Testament, are kind of like the backbone for the story, okay? You start with the Noahic covenant. It's an agreement between two parties, God's saying, I'm never going to judge the earth again with water as I just did, okay? And there's also some other stipulations in there. You move to the Abrahamic covenant. God just unconditionally saying, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you because I want to. You're the one that I've chosen. It is no reason on your part, but through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the world. And then you come, you have the Mosaic covenant, which is a little bit different, but the Davidic covenant is kind of like, you know, if you guys like Lord of the Rings, it's kind of like the one ring to rule them all, except except when you get to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So it's like this, the second ring to rule part of things. But it's really important, okay? The Davidic covenant is really, really important. It clarifies where God is going, okay? All these bad things have happened. What's going on? 2 Samuel 7. Um, start reading with me at verse 9. 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. This is God speaking to David. He said, And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Where do we hear that before? You guys remember? Abraham in Genesis 12. He's just picking up and moving on. He's moving through, right? Now David. 
like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. It's going back to Genesis 12 again. They're going to dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. You know, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Oh, judges, that was a horrible time. Okay, it's not going to be like that. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. More of the Lord declares that, excuse me, more of the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. There's kind of a play on words here with um, house um, and um, seed and offspring. This isn't just, uh, well, in the temple. This isn't just, you know, he's saying I'm going to build a literal building for you. He's saying that I'm going to establish your dynasty, your seed, descendants. Through David, the Messiah is going to come. Through David, Christ is going to come. Second half of verse 12, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. He shall build a temple for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this Davidic kingdom in one sense is going to last forever, okay? So when we come to, we're gonna get there, but when Solomon falls and we see the kingdom split, kind of goes back to Sky Monster principle, has this been fulfilled? No, we're still waiting for when Christ sets up his kingdom on this earth. We're still waiting for that to happen. He goes on, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, an eternal kingdom. There's so much more I could say, but the Davidic covenant is central for especially our journey through Joel, okay? Because this is a sure promise, a, we might say an unconditional promise. God is going to fulfill this He's going to bring this about. Okay, last two. <clears throat> First Kings 4.20. This is a very significant passage that I think oftentimes in biblical studies is overlooked. Okay, This is after uh, David has um, gone to be with the Lord. His son Solomon is now ruling. Just listen to some of this language and maybe just think through, man, what's going on here? Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Can anyone remember, like, I don't know, a prophecy maybe in Genesis where God said to someone, hey, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. They're going to be as numerous as the sand. Abraham. Whoa. So I'm reading this. You know, I'm, I'm a Jew living, you know, 10th century BC, and I'm like, whoa, we're doing really good. Is this the fulfillment of that prophecy? You guys track it with me? They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. Okay, now we didn't go over this, but in Genesis 15, that's actually the uh, boundaries of the promised land. When God says, hey, I'm going to give your people this land, those are the boundaries. Whoa, we're doing really good. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Okay, remember that like random prophecy with the horse eating the bush and the guy washes clothes in wine? What does it say? The context of that is that there's going to be someone bringing tribute to that ruler. What do we see here? They're bringing tribute. So you're reading this and you guys should be going, whoa, 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 this is great. Maybe this is a fulfillment. This is awesome. Israel's doing great. Solomon's provision for one day. This is amazing. I, I can't read it all, but like, think about this. For one day, I eat a lot. But I don't eat this much. And I mean, this is his household. It's not just him. So it's not, I guess it's not that impressive. But it's still pretty impressive. 10 fat oxen, 
20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, not to mention deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Like, this guy's eating a ton. Like, Israel is having immense, what? Physical prosperity. You guys see that? For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. You come down to verse 25. They live in safety. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Just remember those words. They're going to be very, very important when we come to Joel. Vine and fig tree, okay? There's an amazing physical prosperity. They're doing really, really well. You come down to verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom, understanding beyond measure in the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. It's not a trick question. What was the other person in the Bible, like in Genesis 1, who maybe he like named, you know, some of the beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish? Who was that? Adam. Okay, so you guys should be reading this and going, whoa, 1 Kings 4 wants me to think, wow, this is really, really good. All these promises, all these prophecies, is this the one we've been waiting for? And the sad part is the letdown, is it? No. No, it is not. We're still actually awaiting those things. But you see that this is what, when the Messiah rules and reigns, it's going to be even greater than this. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. <clears throat> but this is not fulfilled in Solomon's reign. First Kings 11 you can turn there if you want. If not, I'm just going to be really quick. <clears throat> you have this glorious chapter in 1 Kings 4. But you even see earlier on, actually I will go back. 1 Kings chapter 6, the very end. Solomon, he's building the temple, okay? He's building the temple. Verse 38, the last sentence, he was seven years in building it, okay? I'm not a builder, I don't know. But it's just like, wow, seven years, okay, that takes a long time, like, he put a lot of work into building this temple, okay? I'm sure that was really good. Look at the next verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. So where is he spending more work and effort, building God's house or his own house? His own house, okay? You even see that this is not a man after God's own heart. This is not the one to whom tribute will ultimately come to. This is not the Messiah we've been waiting for. You come to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. They turned his heart away. This is not good. Uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. You come to the end of 1 Kings 11, and the Lord promises, he prophesies uh, through a prophet, but he says, hey, because of what you've done, the kingdom's going to be divided. The kingdom's going to be divided. There's going to be 10 tribes in the north, which is what we typically call Israel. There's going to be two tribes in the south, which is typically what we call Judah, okay? <clears throat> but because of my promise to David, the Lord is saying this, because of this, I'm not going to utterly take the kingdom away because what still needs to happen? God needs to establish his eternal kingdom, right? Like there's going to be a kingdom where Christ reigns forever and ever. But the kingdom is going to be split. And this is the context of Joel, okay? So I'm, I'm going to end there. But 
this is where I don't just do all that for like, okay, that's real cool. We talked about the Old Testament for an hour. You need to see what's going on. And I hope as you see that, you start reading, you know, passages in Leviticus, or you start reading especially the prophets, and you're going to see, okay, I get the context. I actually understand what's going on. God has this original creational agenda that he's going to fill the earth with his glory through mankind. They're going to rule and have dominion, and there's going to be one person who's king over it all, and we're still waiting for that to happen. And so when we come to a passage like Joel, when we look at Joel, he's in this context of the divided kingdom. So generally speaking, is that a good part of Israel's history or a bad part? A bad part. The divided kingdom is not good. They need to be united. Actually, Ezekiel prophesies that, and I think Ezekiel 36, that the kingdoms are going to be reunited, okay? But Israel is in a downward spiral, you might say, okay? And that is the context of Joel. That is the literary context. Next, we're going to get into the historical context. I'm real excited because we'll move through that. So we'll actually start Joel next week. I don't know how far we'll get, but maybe like the first couple verses. But we're just going to go through line by line, okay? And so I'm excited for this because I asked this the first week. But like, how many of you guys think you know Joel really well? It's like, I don't. Like, I need to study Joel. This is God's word. I need to know. So we're just going to go through line by line. And I think you're going to see it's not as cryptic or as confusing as we might initially think. We just need to be rooted in all that stuff that we just talked about. All of that biblical context and content. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions, anything? I'm, I'm going to end early. Well, not early, but earlier than I did last week. I mean, I'm ending on time. Any questions on that? If not, you can come talk to me afterwards. It's always good seeing you here. Taking a Thursday night out of your week. I hope it's... What was it? Is the Bible exciting? I love the Bible. I love it. It's so good. Let me pray, and then you guys are dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. And it um, shines a light to our path that you establish our steps, you make it clear. Lord, I just pray as we look at all these passages, we see your plan for your son and for your people. We see it so clearly. Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately. Lord, as Psalm 2 says, that we would kiss the Son lest he be angry and we perish in the way. Um, Lord, I pray that we would run to you, that you are full of grace and truth and mercy, that we would not um, come to this class and just learn neat verses and better understand our Bibles, but we would change our hearts as we understand your word. So Lord, I pray that our affections for you would increase, that we would love you, we'd be energized by your word. Um, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it does pierce to our hearts, it moves in our minds, it convicts us of sin, it draws us to see your glory and all of its brilliance. I just pray that you'd continue to be with us. Lord, bless us as we even begin next week looking at the book of Joel. We ask this in your name. Amen.